Solitaire Rose Radio 82, talking high heels with Tanya Kay. Tanya Kay is a performer who you may not know the name of, but you've probably seen her in all sorts of things. She has been a dancer. She's been an actress. She's been a director of short films. She has been a burlesque dancer. She has been a stunt woman. She's done lots of small parts in network TV shows. She's been in the Puppet Master series. She was in the Evil Bong series. I recently just found out she was in CM Punk's horror movie, The Girl on the Third Floor, which I didn't even know before I started the interview. I have followed Tanya's work since she was on Who Wants to Be a Superhero, which was one of the early reality shows. It was on sci-fi TV. It was hosted by Stan Lee. And I watched it, of course, because it was Stan. And it was goofy and campy and fun. It was a lot of fun. And at the time, all of the people who were on it were, you know, showing up at conventions and things like that. Tanya had a website. And on her website was a message board. And she interacted with the people who were on it. Most people, most celebrities who had message boards just set them up and let somebody else run it. Tanya was very hands-on. She was also very encouraging to people. And I think that's why I became interested more in her career outside that show, because people would talk about the things that they wanted to do or the artistic things that they were interested in. And she would be incredibly encouraging, almost become a cheerleader for the people on the site. I then saw that she was on other TV shows and she had a thing where you could sign up and you'll you'd get a notice for when she would be on something. And I was amazed at just the range of performance and the range of talent she had. And we've kind of, quote, known each other, unquote, online for a few years now. And now she has a Indiegogo project. She is putting together a short film called High Heels. She talks about it in this interview. But in the interview, we talk about her her career, her philosophy. We talk about high heels, um, why it is such an interesting and unique premise, but also why I went out of my way to support it. And I hope that you will too. So here is an interview with Hollywood's most dangerous woman, Tanya Kay. I want to start off by the fact that you have done so many things. You have stomped. You have been a, a superhero. You've been a villain in Lifetime movies that you actually made me watch. It, the only time I've watched life, Lifetime movies of my own free will. Uh, you've done burlesque. You've done tap. You've done yoga. You've taught yoga. You've run a, a pole show with vintage cars. Am I missing 
anything. <laughs> I did a lot of um, villain work. Why villain? I don't know. But I did a lot of villain work in independent horror movies, too. Oh, okay. Charles Band's Puppet Master. It's oh, wow. Popular. I was the puppet master, the villain <laughs> in this one. Um, Amityville Terror, Derailed, lots of horror villainy as well. So eventually you're going to show up on uh, Joe Bob Briggs's show uh, talking about the horrible things you've done in film. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, for sure. And, um, another project is that I think is important is Anita Berber is Dead. This is an original um, musical comedy that I created with the Independent Shakespeare Company of California. And right before the pandemic, we did a workshop production of it, which was, I was Anita Berber. Um, I choreographed in it. Uh, and performed the lead role. There's 27 original songs, 13 original dances. And right before the pandemic, we put it up as a workshop production and we sold out like every show. And then the pandemic hit, of course, and it did what it did to the arts and entertainment. And this year, next year, I guess, 2024, we are coming back in the, in the autumn and we're doing our premiere production of it. So that one's a big project that we've put a lot of love into. And it's about Anita Berber. So who doesn't love that? And I wanted to bring up the ascension of Ava Delaney, which was one of your short films, all one take on a drone. Now, I'm not a filmmaker, but I've stu I studied film in college. I'm a big film fan. Anytime you're doing a single take, you have to plot it out meticulously, much like your choreography, where it has to seem spontaneous, but it's not. How much work went into that? crazy amount of work and um it's not the only single take film that i've done so the ascension of ava delane was risky in the way uh technology wise that we shot that single take it's a five minute film we shot the single take on drone so that is technology wise totally crazy and it did take a long time to get right in rehearsals Normally in film, you don't rehearse as much as you shoot, but this was the opposite. We rehearsed way more and shot way less. And it's so site specific. This drone wasn't traveling horizontally through space. It was traveling vertically to tell the story of a, a woman rising in age, rising in value, rising in her sexual confidence. And we start on ground level and then we end on literally on top of the building. So it was very site specific. That was part of the time consuming part of making that film was how long I had to location scout <laughs> to get the right location. Then we had rehearsals just for drone. Then we had rehearsals for the actress um, with the drone. Then we had like literally an hour cause we wanted to catch it during sunset in Los Angeles. And so we had like an hour to do the shoot, the actual shoot. But check this out. Another film I made, uh, Every Digital Ghost, was a single take and it was captured live. 
It was 30 minutes, single take. And it's not like, it's not like crazy drone work in that film, but it was challenging in a different way. Uh, I love continuous takes. It was challenging in a different way because the actors had to rehearse more like theater where they're delivering 30 minutes of dialogue without a cut. That is very unusual in film. Usually you deliver maybe a couple minutes of dialogue max to tell you the truth. And there's cuts in there and you get different angles and whatever. So you don't have to know anything from start to finish when you're typically shooting film and television as an actor. But these actors did and we had a live editor, kind of like Super Bowl or award shows or Saturday Night Live. Like we had an, a remote live editor doing live editing so it wouldn't break up our 30 minute single take. And to the point of loving continuous takes like I do, I'm producing a new film right now. I'm very excited about High Heels. It's set in the vaudeville arts, so it's very colorful, burlesque dancers, drag artists, cirque artists everywhere. It's very beautiful, very fun, exciting, very physical. And it opens with a continuous take. So we weave our way through the actors on stage. And I'm actually um, I'm actually fundraising. So if anybody wants to get involved with that production and become a part of the filmmaking team, kind of learn what it's like every step of the process. What's it like to location scout? What's it like to cast? Uh, they can get involved. There's even um, ways to get involved where they get a, an acting role or a executive producer credit. So very exciting. I want everybody to come on board and support High Heels. And there will be a continuous take at the top of that, weaving through these contortionist juggler um, tap dancers and following our artist, our ingenue, to her demonstration, which is really her character developed moments. This opening take will be um, probably five minutes long. So it'll compared to the ascension of Ava Delane, just won't be shot on drone. We're hoping for a Trinity cam. If anybody knows a lot about filmmaking, Trinity cam is like a, a steady cam, but it can flip upside down like a gimbal. Only okay. it's, it's a much more wonderful machine. So it's set on your body and it doesn't hurt the camera operator's body as much. And when we want flip it down, it will be at like ground level looking at the contortionist like that low that close to the ground but then it can also flip up in one steady continuous take and get people's eye lines or anything it's really a great piece of equipment so that is because i know most of your background from dance it sounds like the camera is actually going to almost be a dancer as you're filming and with choreography like that, is it a lot of where you show people what to do, you storyboard? What are the nuts and bolts of having the camera as a dancer? Well, um, that is, you're right. The camera is a dancer in all of my productions. And I like to choreograph it as a dance. So the camera operator has to be 
um, very coordinated. And I'm not saying camera operators aren't usually, they are usually very coordinated, but the more experience they do have with working with a dancer. So when I tell them, this is the move that we're gonna be down here at floor level to capture, it's ideal that they know what that move is. So preferably I would work with a dancer who is a camera operator. Now in this production, we have director of photography, um, Rogan Loebs, and he's a Canadian. He is in British Columbia. He's a great director of photography and he will have a separate camera operator. That's not always the case on independent films. Sometimes the DP is also the camera operator and they know what they want. It's easy, but I communicate as the director of the film, I communicate with the director of photography and the director of photography communicates with the camera operator, especially if it's a Trinity cam or of a steady cam. Those are really specialized equipment. So yeah, so it's a different person in this case. And it will be, it just depends as a director who likes to direct that way. It's a crapshoot. Hopefully your camera operator is really athletic and understands dance. That's ideal. That's really ideal. And if not, I always work with somebody and Sometimes it won't happen with the Trinity cam because I don't know how to operate it. But sometimes I even grab the camera and be like, you know, like this to this. And that's a good way. If if words aren't delivering the camera direction, then movement can. And that's what I'm obsessed with is movement. I love stunts. I love showcasing people's bodies, even if it's gross or hilarious or sensual. I love uh, dance, of course, and that's what High Heels project is featuring, the vaudeville movements. And you, now I know that you were born in Michigan, and then something happened and you ended up dancing on Broadway, and I may have seen you because my son and I went and saw Stomp when it came through Minneapolis. So how did you get from Michigan to Broadway? A lot of gumption and just committing to that artist lifestyle. First, I, I graduated valedictorian in my farm town in Michigan, and there weren't a lot of opportunities for professional arts and entertainment. <laughs> Uh, I was also young and clueless, so I moved to another small town in Indiana, and I, you know, partied a lot, and I ended up getting arrested there. This is part of my artist story. I got arrested, and I was up to no good for a little while, and I really realized, you know, looking back at those times, that the reason I got arrested was because I wasn't fully committed to the artist lifestyle yet. So I was trying to fit myself into the nine to five world, which just kept firing me from jobs. <laughs> but um, as soon as I got arrested and I started auditioning over in Chicago, which was like a three hour drive away. As soon as I started auditioning in Chicago, I started booking jobs and that, let me know that I am not a loser. I am an artist and I've never looked back. 
So once I got to Chicago and the population was big enough and arts and entertainment does thrive there, I had work and it doesn't last all year. It lasts, you know, in chunks of time and I can execute that magnificently and I don't get fired. I get applause. And it was while I was in Chicago, I started touring. I did the Tap Dance Kid tour. I did the Kenny Rogers tour. He was awesome to work with, by the way. And I taught dance. I worked at my own acting studio there. And I did local theater and local musical theater as well. And from there, I saw in Illinois, I saw Stomp come through town. And as a tap dancer, I was like, this is my dream show. And when I, I don't even know, we didn't have the internet like this back then. So I have no idea how I found out that Stomp was even auditioning, but I flew from Chicago to New York to audition for Stomp. And I remember I told my dad that I was doing it and he goes, well, this will be a good experience. You can go, you can learn, and you know, you'll learn for next time. And I said, dad, what are you talking about? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna audition, I'm gonna get the job. And he laughed and he was like, good attitude. <laughs> and I did go and I got the job. There were like 1200 people who auditioned and they selected seven women for callbacks. I got the callback. And in the end, they hired three women out of 1,200. And wow. that started just the best next three years of my life. I toured, They, I performed in New York, I performed in San Francisco, and then I toured all 50 states. It was so much fun. Still my dream job every night. Stomp is, is awesome. Yes. It's awesome. Yeah. Now, another part of your career path has been burlesque. And for me, until I would say the late 90s, I thought burlesque had was relegated to the past. But I saw the Patani sisters with low straight jackets and found out, no, this is still around. And it's shifted from what it was in the 40s, 50s and 60s, which was this was the legal way for women to take their clothes off to a more dance and character oriented thing that didn't rely so much on titillation but more on dance how did you find out about that revival and then sort of slide into their dms i'd like to think that i was a part of the revival honestly um at least in los angeles when i started uh, performing burlesque, there weren't a lot of professional dancers who were also performing burlesque in that location at that time. So there's just a handful of us in all of Los Angeles, and I was one of them. And I feel like, you know, bringing um, trained dance to that city with with burlesque really changed the art form locally there, at least. And I didn't actually know what burlesque was at the time. Now I do. I am extremely <laughs> educated on it. And it's funny that you mentioned like in the 50s, 60s, when it was um, more like a titillation, like legal strip stripping, if you will, 
there's an interesting history of burlesque where burlesque has existed for a very long time, but we can find traces of it back into the late 1800s on the medicine show vaudeville circuit. So the traveling shows had burlesque dancers with them and it was very character driven. It was very ridiculous. It was sometimes comedic. It was fun and funny and it literally took over Broadway. The Minxie brothers in the 1920s, 1910s, 1920s, the Minxie brothers owned most of Broadway and what they put in their shows, their shows were burlesque. And it was such, such a conflict. Like society was like, how can all these huge Broadway theaters be performing burlesque? We, we're gonna outlaw the name. So people for a period of time couldn't call anything burlesque because the word was outlawed. Then talking movies started happening, right? So burlesque reigned on Broadway with the Minxie brothers for quite a while. And then films became talkies and they started getting movie theaters and every burlesque house turned into a movie house. Audience didn't want to see live performances at all, including burlesque. They wanted to see the movies. And so some of these burlesque venues shut down or they just transformed and transitioned to theater, maybe movie theaters. And how it maintained, it did maintain, it lost popularity there in the 50s and 60s because of that. And how they did anything was they'd add a burlesque dancer to a movie screening and they would put it, put the bump and grind at the movie theater. That's burlesque, that's the bump and grind. And that's how these movie theaters became known as grind houses. And the movies they played became known as grind house films. It was the bump and grind house. So you would go and you'd get like a burlesque performer that was behaving more like you said, like more titillation, more strippy. And then you'd get an exploitation film <laughs> paired with that. So that's the grind house, yay. And I'm just delighted over time uh, in the 70s, the poll, the poll showed up and topless go-go dancing for the yes. women's limb movement showed up. And that was a whole different thing. That's not burlesque. That's not stripping. It's topless go-go dancing. It's another exotic art form. Then the poll came and that's when strip clubs became a thing. I'm so delighted. I mean, the history of burlesque includes all of that stuff. And where it is today is exactly as you said, people have taken it, they've run with it. Maybe a professional dancer is performing it now. Maybe a vocalist is performing, like Gypsy Rose Lee used to do literally spoken burlesque acts. It's, it's, I feel it's returning more towards what it originally was, very theatrical, very character driven, sometimes containing specialty arts. And it delights me because the creativity in the burlesque scene is outstanding. These women and men make their own costumes. They make their own music. They choreograph their own dances. They are their own characters. Like you get so much creativity from one soloist. It's beautiful. And of course, it's a huge part of my life. So that's why I've, I wrote and I'm directing High Heels. 
It's about a burlesque legend conflicted with a burlesque ingenue. She's an extremely trained dancer and our burlesque legend is an 80 year old woman and the burlesque legend takes her headlining spot one night. And so our ingenue decides she's going to sabotage her. And this is what happens when a young burlesque dancer who doesn't necessarily know the history of burlesque and doesn't even recognize who this burlesque legend is. She just thinks she's an old lady when this young ingenue tries to sabotage a burlesque legend and what happens then in the vaudeville circuit. <laughs> um, when I watched your pitch video for this, the core of it, that part really struck me as just this beautiful idea of a young person who thinks they know everything learning that they don't. And I think a lot of people, when they first get into any sort of arts, the first thing they're going to do is, you know, the old people, they don't know anything. I'm going to change the world. And they find out, hope if they're going to last in any sort of artistic endeavor, that, no, we do things for a reason. Slow down there, buckaroo. You don't know what you think you know. And the story you tell, and I, I recommend everybody go to the Indiegogo page to just watch that pitch video. It's very touching, and I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to, by the end of it, you know, kind of be, oh, I, I think my allergies are, are getting to me because I'm having to, you know, my eyes are. Uh, where did the idea come from for this? It actually happened to me. I was that young headliner. I was the headliner who was a hot shot. I did, I headlined every show. And one night in Hollywood, I was invited to the theater. And on the show flow, I wasn't headlining. There was somebody else in the headliner spot. And I was like, okay, who is this that has replaced me? And I ended up meeting in the dressing room in walks this elderly showgirl. I mean, she was old. She was old. And she was getting ready. She asked me to put on her shoes for her because she couldn't reach her feet anymore. And I'm baffled. I'm like, are you serious? A woman who can't even reach her feet anymore is going to take my headliner spot? Lo and behold, I performed my very athletic act and people love it. It's one of my signature acts, the grinder girl, and people loved it. It was great. Then I went to the back of the house to watch my nemesis, <laughs> my competition <laughs> perform her act. And I did not have high hopes. I was like, this woman can't even reach her feet. But what I saw was my learning moment and that was, she owned that stage like a professional. I get teary-eyed just talking about it. She owned that stage. She had more fun than anyone in the theater. And that's when I did realize that burlesque is not about my technical skill necessarily. That's something I can add to it. Um, that's when I realized burlesque is about how engaging you can be to the audience. Your confidence, your joy at performing this art form she cleaned up. Everybody forgot my performance by the end of hers. 
she was out there just commanding the stage, doing something as simple as strutting. She couldn't dance. She couldn't like kick. She couldn't do those things anymore. But she strutted across the stage with this infectious smile. And afterwards, I learned she is Satan's angel. <laughs> she is the originator of the Fire Tits Act. I had been tributing that act for years. And so basically, I'm sitting with my idol. And how horrible is the world that I didn't even know that this is one of my idols, that we don't have a platform for mentorship, for to honor our elders. When you think about it, vaudeville, all arts in vaudeville, let's include drag, let's include Cirque, let's include burlesque. All these arts are not taught at at any school, you don't go to Tisch University to learn about burlesque. You get yourself in a show and you learn from mentorship. Somebody else teaches you how to handle a bullwhip. Somebody else teaches you how to handle throwing knives. And you take that information, that mentorship, and it's really a culture. You're pass the mentors are passing down the culture of vaudeville, a culture of burlesque, and that's how it must happen. It must be passed down from person to person. So by robbing society of a platform to honor our female elders, especially, we're really robbing the arts. We're not giving a place for mentorship to happen. And I want that more than anything. This is why I wrote and I'm directing this film is because I want to wake people up and know that the arts require this mentorship and the honoring of those mentors and our elders. That's what High Heels is about. The other thing about any sort of arts where you have to compete for a spot, the competition, you know, just think about how many people tried out for Stomp and only three got it. When there's that much competition, there are probably a lot of people who, I'm not giving you my secrets, you'll take my job. And you have lasted in a field that is primarily for young folks. Now, you're got to be at least in your 30s. <laughs> at least. <laughs> have you felt that competition and have you changed what you do as your body changes? Because you're not as limber as when you're in your 20s. You're, you know, certain things change as you get older. And you've also had some health concerns. Has that changed your performance? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, You're right. In professional dance, I have lasted a lot longer <laughs> than other people. And um, even recently, I still perform burlesque and I still tour with companies. And I'm dancing on stage, taking my clothes off next to 22-year-olds. And I am, I'm way old enough to be their mom. Um, so, uh, how that's changed me in ways, one, I am very conscious and I always have been, I'm, I'm a long-term vegan, um, love movement, love getting in with my body, learning, listening, and I have changed the way I work out, um, because I'm much more serious about <laughs> looking great next to those 22 year olds. Let's put it that way. 
So physically, I have made sure that I don't let myself go in order to stay in the arts in the capacity that I'm in. But also, yeah, I've had all the injuries, uh, all of them, repeatedly. And I need surgery on bone spurs on my feet at this very moment. I got a cancer diagnosis two years ago, breast cancer diagnosis. All of these things change the way I move. They change the amount of effort that I have to put in, like a cancer diagnosis or anybody who has had some sort of major diagnosis like that in their lives, followed by treatments. Um, it did that specifically took the wind out of my sails creatively, if you will. And there was a long period of time that I was unable to lead projects, which is something that I'm really good at. I'm really good at leading projects and visualizing the creativity, but I was unable during treatments for cancer. And now I'm back, yay, I'm in, what's it called? Well, they didn't actually give me the remission. Um, I don't know if you have to wait a certain number of years, but I've had my one year checkup and I don't have any evidence of recurrence for breast cancer, yay. But even the surgeries have changed the way my upper body moves. And I have to modify. I have to modify regularly. And I notice that I'm becoming the mentor for other people. I do teach burlesque at the local dance studio nowadays. And I'm becoming the mentor. I'm becoming the person that has the experience. And when I do step on stage, I do notice that the audience still responds to somebody with experience and who knows who they are and has that to offer, they respond to it better, honestly, than somebody who's just up there going, do you think I'm sexy? I'm gonna prove to you I'm sexy. Um, now I'm sexy, right? That's not as alluring to the audience as somebody who's older. So burlesque is one of those things. You get better the older you get. In the terms of professional dance, I am slowing down. Um, I don't like to hurt as much. So yes, I've changed the way I move with the bone spurs on the toes. I try not to wear high heels, ironically. So yeah, it's, it's definitely life has changed and I'm committed to staying in the arts and entertainment field. Um, as you can see though, I am transitioning to mentorship, teaching, directing, writing, being more of the creative um, leader. Now with directing, I look over the stuff you've done. You've done live TV, which is very, very different from short film. And what, how did you kind of get into the live TV thing? Because that is, I have friends who direct live TV and they say it's like herding cats. Because you can say all you want what you want, but things are going to explode and things are going to go their own way. Whereas on a film, if it doesn't go your way, it's okay, cut. Let's try again. How did you deal with that contradiction? Fortunately, I've had so much experience with continuous takes and rehearsing <laughs> quite a bit before you get to your shoot day. Also, I've had experience with every digital ghost of doing that live editing, like Saturday Night Live, like live TV. So I kind of knew going into it, um, the live TV moment that you're talking about or that I'm talking about is with Ripley's Believe It or Not. And I wrote and directed, choreographed, 
a segment called Curious Christmas. And we rehearsed quite a bit before we got there. I knew going into it that when we had our on-set rehearsal, it's a little different. The director of the overall program is not me. I'm the director of my segment that I'm putting up. So I knew that I wouldn't really get too intimate, too intimate work with the camera department. And that's different than a normal set experience. You work intimately with the camera department as the director. But I knew I wouldn't get too much work with the camera department, with the sound department, and I would get no say over the editing. So it that is different. And I knew that going into it because of my continuous take and the live editing that I had done in previous projects. So it's it's just different. It's a different creativity. And I find that the best way I can approach all creativity on camera is to really let go and be okay with the things that do happen live. Like that, let go, be okay. Unless you want to do everybody's job for them, which I don't <laughs> and I can't, then you need to learn how to be okay with every artist's contribution and how it's contributed at that time. Now, the other thing is you've had a lot of different careers that for many people, that would be enough. How did you sort of move into the acting realm that had no dance involved? I was an actor from get-go because I did musical theater and you heard <laughs> triple threats. That's acting, singing, and dancing. I was the triple threat, and I did it in the old days when people loved a triple threat. Nowadays, like, they'll cast a movie like Cats, love it or, or leave it, but they'll cast it with a singer who doesn't necessarily act. Uh, they'll cast it based on names. They'll cast it with a dancer who doesn't necessarily sing. So you get a lot of weird stuff happening on film that affects the quality of the final. But yeah, I got started early. I was acting young. I was making little movies on my parents' VHS. I was directing young. Uh, but it was when I got to Chicago that I started working at the acting studio. So taking those classes and learning different techniques to apply. I did commercials and I did industrials back in Chicago. And there's really acting happening. Anytime you're performing, even if it is a silent dance performance, you're still acting. So it's very beneficial for even dancers to take acting classes so they can explore that side of themselves and have more to give in the acting world. Then, you know, I did all the tours and I ended up in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is a film and TV town. I got to say it. It's not so much a theater town. And when you're a creative like I am, you figure out how to make money. It's not like there is no guidebook to being a professional artist in any capacity. So when I got to LA, I was like, oh, it's film and TV. Oh, it's acting. They're hiring actors. This is my chance to really put my acting skills to work. Um, I attended another conservatory, Second City Comedy Conservatory. Kept up with my acting classes, of course, and just started working pretty, pretty quickly in Los Angeles film and television as an actor as well. And it gives me great joy. I really feel that acting is a very noble art form because 
what we're doing as actors is we're exploring what it's like to be another human. We may not even agree with those humans' decisions in our personal lives, but it's our role and it's our character. So we we give up a lot of our own identity and personality to learn what it's like to see things from a different perspective. And I think that's so human and it's needed in humanity right now. And I think actors are at their best. It's, are very noble artists. Now, on Lifetime, you played the villain in pretty much everything there. And I have I know people who have worked on soap operas who say that people recognize them as their character and they'll say, that's somebody I play on TV. And the person will say, that's nice, but you need to quit being so mean to, to Erica. Do you get any of that from all of the different roles you've had yeah um, the villain stuff I think most people know that I'm a person but I do get it on on set I did video game reunion which was a parody of the Mario yes Super Mario games and I played Princess Peach and I was a mean Princess Peach I was a hot mess in that one and I would go in there and I would act as an actor, I would just destroy the scene. Like it was my character <laughs> to do this. And then cut, I'd walk off stage and, or offset. And the makeup artist is like, you are so scary when you're <laughs> acting. Like you're the nicest person I know when you're not acting. I was like, thank you. That's, that's good acting. I've been recognized in like, grocery stores at airports i've even been recognized out on maui in the middle of the jungle oh wow <laughs> yeah and people usually know the difference between villainy and human beings but the place where i do have mistaken identities is there's a lot of assumptions that come with burlesque yeah so people will watch me perform burlesque or they'll see one of my videos and recognize me or meet me in person. And they assume that I'm like this hypersexual creature <laughs> out to make sure that people think I'm sexy or something. And that's super not in my personality. Like I, I'm, I'm just like anyone, this is an art form that I perform and that I'm really good at. And I've explored that side of things, but just like villainy, like when I'm not on the burlesque stage, I'm just a normal person. <laughs> Walking around being normal, I think. Ask ask somebody else. Maybe I'm not normal, but I feel like I am. Well, we all feel like we're normal, but nobody's normal. Nobody's normal. normal. And you, again, you've got a nickname that you've had for quite a long time that I have to know the, the, the origin of. The most dangerous woman in Hollywood. Where did you get that? Uh, yeah, that was given to me by a wonderful host in Los Angeles who hosted burlesque shows. And he gave me two of my nicknames, actually. He gave me Creature. Before Who Wants to Be a Superhero, I was already Creature. Because he was like, you're like a cute monster. You're like a <laughs> creature. So he gave me that name. Philip Solomon is his name. Amazing circus artist and host. And then he also, it just on the fly, introduced me for a show that I was performing burlesque in. And he said, and now let's welcome to the stage, Tanya Kay, the most dangerous woman in Hollywood. 
And that was because I did Grinder Girl. When I started out, my acts were very uh, <laughs> aggressive. I don't know. They were more dynamic. They were daredevil. So I did Grinder Girl. I did Bull Whips. I did even knife throwing acts. I did so many crazy fire tits. Um, it, the list literally goes on of the dangerous acts that I was doing. So he just came up with that as a host on the fly. And I kept it. I kept it. I was like, you are exactly right. Thank you very much. I'm the most dangerous woman in Hollywood. And now I'm living in Vancouver. And yes. they call Vancouver Hollywood North. So you could say I'm the most dangerous woman in Hollywood North now, too. There you go. Yeah. Although Canada's a lot calmer than anywhere in the U.S. Yeah, so it's easier to get the most dangerous certification. Most, most dangerous would be if you don't say sorry when somebody bumps into you. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. See how dangerous I am? There you go. Now, you brought up who wants to be a superhero. That's where I know first kind of bumped into who you are. and. I do a comic book podcast. When you did that, you also had a website with a message board and all this interaction. Did it feel like all of a sudden, boom, after all this work, people know who I am? Or was it just sort of an outgrowth of what you'd been doing all along? It was crazy. It was crazy how many people knew who I was after that show. I had already been on tour with Stomp, which garnered me some attention. Some people followed me from those days. And the internet wasn't like it was, is today. It, it wasn't like it is today back then. So we didn't have, there was MySpace, I think, but it, it, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook, um, there wasn't Twitter or X, there wasn't all of these social networks. And that's why I hosted a forum on my own website. It was kind of like social networking in my world so I could bring people to me. So I made that available back in the day. And then I moved to LA. I booked Who Wants to Be a Superhero? And crazy enough, America's Got Talent. And both of them symbiotically aired on the same night. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was insane. It, I went from like my usual popularity, if you will, to I had thousands of Facebook requests overnight after people had seen me. I, I worked it out. It was like 11 million people saw me in one night on either of those shows, Who Wants to Be a Superhero or America's Got Talent. And it was insane, the amount of friend requests that I was getting. That's when I learned yeah, I don't need a profile on Facebook <laughs> anymore. I don't need to accept friends. I need to have a business page yes. so people can come appreciate the business of what I'm doing without being friends necessarily. That's like reserved now for my parents and yeah. my brother. Uh, pretty much my family are my friends uh, <laughs> on Facebook. But otherwise, it's business and people can come like me. Uh, like my work, follow my work. Like right now, we're promoting high heels and asking people to get involved and get involved in this filmmaking process and the message that we're creating of mentorship and honoring elders. 
And that's what you're going to see on my Facebook page. It has been different, though. It's very different. And you're playing in a bigger world when more people are paying attention to you. Lo and behold, Facebook only puts my posts out to like less than 10% of my followers unless I pay them. But, you know, they're still there and people can still respond to me. And I read everything. I read everything that people write. I care. You know, I do react. But it is different. It's different to have a lot of attention versus a moderate amount of attention. (laughs) I was on that message board and I remember you responding. First off, that was kind of rare for a quote celebrity unquote message board for the person involved to be so responsive. But you also kind of went out of your way to make it feel like we're all one big group here. And in a lot of your your work, you tend to gather people around. You're not doing just burlesque for you. You run a an actual show with vintage cars and all of that. How did you get to the pinup pole show? Uh, good question. Yeah, community is huge to me. And, you know, everybody is vital in the arts and entertainment. Even if you're an audience member watching TV, I still consider you vital to arts and entertainment, audience members, the crew members, the artists, it's all, you're correct. I care a lot about everybody who supports and everybody who creates arts and entertainment. It's my life. In a poll show was born out of an idea that I was just getting into classic cars, by the way. So I own my own classic car, 1965 Buick Riviera, and the family is a 1973 Datsun 240Z. I was just getting into classic cars. Plus, I recognized that I was performing in a lot of people's shows, and I had ideas of my own. So I really wanted to create something that was unique to what I thought was cool and give other people the chance to support my work and my ideas and boy it's so so wonderful the amount of talent and audience and just committed people who flock to my projects and i think partly because i put out good material so they're proud of the work that they see and the work that they that they do when they support my projects when they're acting in my projects when they're contributing to my projects but also it was a great idea pinup pole show i just combined classic car show with everything was retro throwback 1955 to 1965 so we had a live band that would play like throwback tunes rockabilly blues you name it even authentic old music then i combined burlesque which has that vintage vibe to it and pole dance, which was a new thing that I was bringing in. And I was pole dancing at the time too, as an athlete, as an aerialist. And I noticed how most people weren't respecting these crazy athletes for the athletes that they are. They were looking at them like maybe they'd only seen them in a strip club in the past. And that's okay. That's a perfectly great place to see a pole dancer. But this was something different. It was bringing pole dance the athletic side of pole dance to audiences that had never been to a strip club necessarily. They they wanted to see a good piece of theater 
and we exposed them to just great athletes on the pole and we stylized everything in burlesque style so it had that storyline to it like a good burlesque act we did musical comedy it ran for five years it sold out every show the classic car show was bopping and booming it was so much fun we created i created a web series a four-part web series out of it we did oodles of interviews and of course we drew photographers because the pinup aspect of all of this pinup pole show was alluring to them they they come to my car show and i've got my performers out there who are beautiful models and they're modeling with the cars the photographers just flocked to us we ended up in so many magazines cover images on magazines it, that pinup pole show was just another amazing project that I've put together. I hope to do that next with high heels. I hope people flock to me just the same way because it's going to be just as fun and just as cool. Now, with short films, it's harder to find them. I know that uh, the Ascension of Ava Delane is on Amazon. But what with high heels, when it's complete, where are people going to be seeing this other than short film festivals? Thank you for asking. In Canada, it's a little different. In everywhere except the United States, <laughs> it is a little different. So short films are still seen as art and there are places to see and view short films. For example, I'm going to be placing high heels on airlines. Did oh, you know? wow. Yes, Canada is so... Um, they take pride in the art their country creates and they they have a deal with the airlines. So there is a Canada content channel on Alaskan Airlines and Air Canada. One of my biggest goals is to get my film, High Heels, onto the Canada content channel. And they do have short films up there. They have feature films, they have short films, they have PSAs, they have everything that's Canada made on these networks. And when I fly, I do watch it because I prefer independent projects. I really do. And I am always like, let's see what Canada has. That's where I'm gonna find my independent projects. So I watch it when I fly. So that's one of my goals. Another goal is high heel short film is actually, it's a proof of concept for a feature film. So okay. it is, there is a whole feature film script and this will be shopped around to executives and other money people. It will be pitched to more grant writing to create the feature film version. So that's another purpose for this short film. And the other places, of course, we're going to be submitting to festivals. And the goal is to get it out there so more people see it. Eventually, I don't... I heard i haven't done this part of production yet but there are new short film distributors in canada i'm not sure about the us yet but the short film distributors in canada also handle like europe because they also view short films over there i know they're not as accessible in the us but maybe we can change that maybe we can get it on some some platforms where us people are likely to see it like amazon would be wonderful but we'll be exploring every single avenue to get as many eyes on this as possible. And now I'm going to ask a couple of fanboy questions. The first one is you worked with Charles Band. Do you have any good stories about him? Oh, he's awesome, first of all. <laughs> I loved working with Charles Band. 
Um, he is a one of those directors that I admire how relaxed his sets are because you don't get that with every set. So Charles Band is as easy to work with as you think he would be. And he's still making a movie in a very short period of time. So maybe some of the Lifetime films I've been in, they make a movie in a short period of time. But I've literally watched the director and the DP have an arguing match, <laughs> which delayed our day another 45 minutes. Like they are screamed at each other embarrassingly on set, you know, for 45 minutes. Everybody's uncomfortable and we're not shooting. We're wasting time. So that is not what Charles Band does. He's the opposite of that. He's very cool. He's okay with what people do. He gives direction. He cares about the actors. And he understands what he's making. He makes puppet-heavy, monster-heavy films, horror films. And so he understands what he's making. He's got it down to a science. And he really is one of those people that has gathered his community. So if you are familiar with Charles Band, you know about Puppet Master. This is the movie I played the Puppet Master in. Puppet Master 11. It was Axis Termination. You can check it out. He knows what he's doing. He's gathered his own audience. They crowdfund most of their films, by the way. And it's this audience that's so... The people that support the crowdfunding, they're waiting to see the film when it comes out. And I appreciate that so much. I'm doing a crowdfunding campaign of my own for High Heels right now. And I, I'm inspired by him to see the difference or the similarities between crowdfunding and crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing gathers your audience and crowdfunding is like a limb of crowdsourcing. And crowdfunding is where you gather the resources to create your project with that audience. But crowdsourcing, he's got it down. He has so many people just waiting for the next film to come out. It's beautiful. He's been a great mentor to me in that way. And then I have to bring up, because I'm a comic book guy, Stan Lee. Do you have a good Stan Lee story? Oh, yeah, of course. Stan Lee is as pro and old school as you would imagine, he would show up to set and he would just be so fabulous. Like he was quaffed and he looked great and he knew what was going on in that old school way, old school Hollywood, not the like commercial abusive Hollywood that people read about these days, the other way. Like he was fabulous. He knew how to receive his audience and he was so giving um, at the cast party for the premiere of Who Wants to Be a Superhero first season. I played Creature in that. We had a, a cast and crew party. And I brought a friend who's really big Stanley fan. And she wanted to meet him so bad. And I was like, okay, yeah, just be cool. Just be cool. <laughs> meet Stanley, okay? And I went up and I was prepared to just be like a hello, this is my friend. You know, we're not going to take up much of your time because everybody wants to see it's the party. Everybody yeah. wants to hang out with Stan. So I went up there and he went out of his way to take her by the arm and chat with her. He even walked around with her for a little while. And that's that's how great Stanley is. That's how cool he is. Well, I want everybody to go support High Heels. 
watch that video. If it does not bring a tear to your eye, you're dead inside. It's just a beautiful idea. And one of the questions I was going to ask is when you're going to, when will you move from directing short films to features? This could be the one. This could be the one. That's my intention. Yes, there is a lot of support in Canada from the government that's different ways of making films. And I've really explored that. High heels is what I would like to bust out on the feature film directing scene with. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you, Crazy. And that was an hour with Tanya Kay. I want to thank her very much for putting aside the time. Uh, Some housekeeping notes here. There was not an episode of Crazy Comics and Stories this week. Joe was in Reno. I was dealing with some personal issues. And then I came down with COVID. So we'll be talking about that in the next Crazy Comics and Stories. The only good thing about COVID is I have had a lot of time now because I have to isolate. If I do too much, I really get worn out. So I've been reading a lot of comics. So the next episode of Crazy Comics and Stories, we will be talking a lot of comics. I also am sort of clearing my schedule. There will be more Solitaire Rose Radio episodes this year than there were last year. Just some more solo stuff, some more ideas that I want to toss out there. I do want to thank you for listening. want to thank you for subscribing. Please head over to Indiegogo for Tanya K's High Heels. The link is in the notes. It looks like a fantastic project. And just watch that video she did, kind of the pitch video, and you'll get hooked. I swear you'll get hooked if you're not already. I will be back soon with more stories.